Bourgonef, Part Three of the Lock and Key Library. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. The Lock and Key Library, edited by Julian Hawthorne. Bourgonef by Anonymous, Part Three, Chapter Seven. Agalma. At this juncture there arrived from Paris the woman to whom the great sorrow of my life is due. A fatalist might read in her appearance at this particular moment the signs of a prearranged doom. A few weeks later, and her arrival would have been harmless. I should have been shielded from all external influence by the absorbing force of love. But, alas, this was not to be. My fate had taken another direction. The woman had arrived whose shadow was to darken the rest of my existence. That woman was Agalma Liebenstein. How is it that the head, which we can only see surrounded with a halo, or a shadow, when the splendors of achievement, or the infamy of shame, instruct our eyes, is by the uninstructed eye observed as wholly vulgar? We all profess to be physiognomists. How is it we are so lamentably mistaken in our judgments? Here was a woman in whom my ignorant eyes saw nothing at all remarkable except golden hair of unusual beauty. When I say golden, I am not speaking loosely. I do not mean red or flaxen hair, but hair actually resembling burnished gold more than anything else. Its ripples on her brow caught the light like a coronet. This was her one beauty, and it was superb. For the rest, her features were characterless. Her figure was tall and full, not graceful, but sweepingly imposing. At first I noticed nothing about her except the braided splendor of her glorious hair. He rose and went into his bedroom, from which he returned with a small trinket-box in his hand. This he laid open on the table, disclosing a long strand of exquisite fair hair lying on a cushion of dark blue velvet. "'Look at that,' he said. "'Might it not have been cut from an angel's head?' "'It is certainly wonderful.' "'It must have been hair like this which crowned the infamous head of Lucrezia Borgia,' he said bitterly. "'She too had golden hair, but hers must have been of paler tint like her nature.' He resumed his seat and, fixing his eyes upon the lock, continued, "'She was one of Ottilie's friends. Dear friends,' they called each other, which meant that they kissed each other profusely, and told each other all their secrets, or as much as the lying nature of the sex permitted and suggested. It is, of course, impossible for me to distangle my present knowledge from my past impressions, so as to give you a clear description of what I then thought of Agalma.' Enough that, as a matter of fact, I distinctly remember not to have admired her, and to have told Ottilie so. And when Ottilie, in surprise at my insensibility, assured me that men were in general wonderfully charmed with her, though for her part she never had understood why, I answered, and answered sincerely, that it might be true with the less refined order of men, but men of taste would certainly be rather repelled from her. This opinion of mine, or some report of it, reached Agalma. It may have been the proximate cause of my sorrows. 
Without this stimulus to her vanity, she might have left me undisturbed. I don't know. All I know is that over many men Agalma exercised great influence, and that over me she exercised the spell of fascination. No other word will explain her influence, for it was not based on excellences such as the mind could recognize to be attractions. It was based on a mysterious personal power, something awful in its mysteriousness, as all demoniac powers are. One source of her influence over men I think I can explain. She at once captivated and repelled them. By artful appeals to their vanity, she made them interested in her and in her opinion of them, and yet kept herself inaccessible by a pride which was the more fascinating, because it always seemed about to give way. Her instinct fastened upon the weak point in those she approached. This made her seductive to men, because she flattered their weak points, and hateful to women, because she flouted and disclosed their weak points. Her influence over me began in the following way. One day at a picnic, having been led by her into a conversation respecting the relative inferiority of the feminine intellect, I was forced to speak rather more earnestly than usual, when suddenly she turned to me and exclaimed in a lower voice, "'I am willing to credit anything you say. Only pray don't continue talking to me so earnestly.' "'Why not?' I asked, surprised. She looked at me with peculiar significance, but remained silent. "'May I ask why not?' I asked. "'Because if you do, somebody may be jealous.' There was a laughing defiance in her eye as she spoke. "'And pray who has a right to be jealous of me?' "'Oh, you know well enough.' It was true. I did know. And she knew that I knew it. To my shame be it said that I was weak enough to yield to an equivocation which I now see to have been disloyal, but which I then pretended to have been no more than delicacy to Ottilie. As, in point of fact, there had never been a word passed between us respecting our mutual feelings, I considered myself bound in honor to assume that there was nothing tacitly acknowledged. Piqued by her tone and look, I disavowed the existence of any claims upon my attention, and, to prove the sincerity of my words, I persisted in addressing my attentions to her. Once or twice I fancied I caught flying glances, in which some of the company criticized my conduct, and Ottilie also seemed to me unusually quiet. But her manner, though quiet, was untroubled and unchanged. I talked less to her than usual partly because I talked so much to Agalma, and partly because I felt that Agalma's eyes were on us. But no shadow of temper or reserve darkened our interchange of speech. On our way back, I know not what devil prompted me to ask Agalma whether she had really been in earnest in her former allusion to somebody. "'Yes,' she said. "'I was in earnest then.' "'And now?' Now I have doubts. I may have been misinformed. It's no concern of mine, anyway, but I had been given to understand. However, I admit that my own eyes have not confirmed what my ears heard. This speech was irritating on two separate grounds. It implied that people were talking freely of my attachment, 
which, until I had formally acknowledged it, I resented as an impertinence, and it implied that, from personal observation, Agalma doubted Ottilie's feelings for me. This alarmed my quick retreating pride. I, too, began to doubt. Once let loose on that field, imagination soon saw shapes enough to confirm any doubt. Ottilie's manner certainly had seemed less tender, nay, somewhat indifferent during the last few days. Had the arrival of that heavy lout, her cousin, had anything to do with this change? Not to weary you by recalling all the unfolding stages of this miserable story with the minuteness of detail which my own memory morbidly lingers on, I will hurry to the catastrophe. I grew more and more doubtful of the existence in Ottilie's mind of any feeling stronger than friendship for me, and as this doubt strengthened, there arose the flattering suspicion that I was becoming an object of greater interest to Agalma, who had quite changed her tone towards me, and had become serious in her speech and manner. Weeks passed. Ottilie had fallen from her pedestal, and had taken her place among agreeable acquaintances. One day I suddenly learned that Ottilie was engaged to her cousin. You will not wonder that Agalma, who before this had exercised great fascination over me, now doubly became an object of the most tender interest. I fell madly in love. Hitherto I had never known that passion. My feeling for Ottilie, I saw, was but the inarticulate stammerings of the mighty voice which now sounded through the depths of my nature. The phrase, madly in love, is no exaggeration. Madness alone knows such a fever of the brain, such a tumult of the heart. It was not that reason was overpowered. On the contrary, reason was intensely active, but active with that logic of flames which lights up the vision of maniacs. Although, of course, my passion was but too evident to every one, I dreaded its premature avowal, lest I should lose her, and almost equally dreaded delay, lest I should suffer from that also. At length the avowal was extorted from me by jealousy of a brilliant Pole, Korinsky, who had recently appeared in our circle, and was obviously casting me in the shade by his superior advantages of novelty, of personal attraction, and of a romantic history. She accepted me, and now for a time I was the happiest of mortals. The fever of the last few weeks was abating. It gave place to a deep tide of hopeful joy. Could I have died then? Could I have even died shortly afterwards, when I knew the delicious mystery of a jealousy not too absorbing. For you must know that my happiness was brief. Jealousy, to which all passion of a deep and exacting power is inevitably allied, soon began to disturb my content. Agalma had no tenderness. She permitted caresses, never returned them. She was ready enough to listen to all my plans for the future, so long as the recital moved amid details of fortune and her position in society, that is, so long as her vanity was interested, but I began to observe with pain that her thoughts never rested on tender domesticities and poetic anticipations. This vexed me more and more. The very spell which she exercised over me made her want of tenderness more intolerable. 
I yearned for her love, for some sympathy with the vehement passion which was burning within me, and she was as marble. You will not be surprised to hear that I reproached her bitterly for her indifference. That is the invariable and fatal folly of lovers. They seem to imagine that a heart can be scolded into tenderness. To my reproaches she at first answered impatiently that they were unjust, that it was not her fault if her nature was less expansive than mine, and that it was insulting to be told she was indifferent to the man whom she had consented to marry. Later she answered my reproaches with haughty defiance, one day intimating that if I really thought what I said, and repented our engagement, it would be most prudent for us to separate ere it was too late. This quieted me for a while, but it brought no balm to my wounds. And now fresh tortures were added. Korinsky became quite marked in his attentions to Agalma. These she received with evident delight, so much so that I saw by the glances of others that they were scandalized at it, and this, of course, increased my pain. My renewed reproaches only made her manner colder to me. To Korinsky it became what I would gladly have seen towards myself. The stress and agitation of those days were too much for me. I fell ill, and for seven weeks lay utterly prostrate. On recovering, this note was handed to me. It was from Agalma. Bourgonef here held out to me a crumpled letter, and motioned that I should open it and read. It ran thus. I have thought much of what you have so often said, that it would be for the happiness of both if our unfortunate engagement were set aside, that you have a real affection for me, I believe, and be assured that I once had a real affection for you, not perhaps the passionate love which a nature so exacting as yours demands, and which I earnestly hope it may one day find, but a genuine affection nevertheless, which would have made me proud to share your lot but it would be uncandid in me to pretend that this now exists. Your incessant jealousy, the angry feelings excited by your reproaches, the fretful irritation in which for some time we have lived together, has completely killed what love I had, and I no longer feel prepared to risk the happiness of both of us by a marriage. What you said the other night convinces me that it is even your desire our engagement should cease." it is certainly mine. Let us try to think kindly of each other and meet again as friends. Agalma Liebenstein. When I had read this and returned it to him, he said, You see that this was written on the day that I was taken ill. Whether she knew that I was helpless, I know not. At any rate, she never sent to inquire after me. She went off to Paris. Korinsky followed her, and as I quickly learned on going once more into society, they were married. Did you ever, in the whole course of your experience, hear of such heartless conduct? Bourgonef asked this with a ferocity which quite startled me. I did not answer him, for, in truth, I could not see that Agalma had been very much to blame, even as he told the story, and felt sure that, could I have heard her version, it would have worn a very different aspect. That she was cold and disappointed in him might be true enough, but there was no crime, 
and I perfectly understood how thoroughly odious he must have made himself to her by his exactions and reproaches. I understood this, perhaps, all the better, because in the course of his narrative Bourgonef had revealed to me aspects of his nature which were somewhat repulsive. Especially was I struck with his morbid vanity, and his readiness to impute low motives to others. This unpleasant view of his character, a character in many respects so admirable for its generosity and refinement, was deepened as he went on, instead of awaiting my reply to his question. For a wrong so measureless, you will naturally ask what measureless revenge I sought. The idea had not occurred to me. Indeed, I could see no wrong, and this notion of revenge was somewhat startling in such a case. I debated it long, he continued. I felt that since I was prevented from arresting any of the evil to myself, I could at least mature my plans for an adequate discharge of just retributions on her. It reveals the impotence resulting from the trammels of modern civilization, that while the possibilities of wrong are infinite, the openings for vengeance are few and contemptible. Only when a man is thrown upon the necessities of this wild justice does he discover how difficult vengeance really is. Had Agalma been my wife, I could have wreaked my wrath upon her, with assurance that some of the torture she inflicted on me was to fall on her. Not having this power, what was I to do? Kill her? That would have afforded one moment of exquisite satisfaction, but to her it would have been simply death, and I wanted to kill the heart. He seemed working with an insane passion, so that I regarded him with disgust, mingled with some doubts as to what horrors he was about to relate. My plan was chosen. The only way to reach her heart was to strike through her husband. For several hours daily I practiced with the pistol, until, in spite of only having a left hand, I acquired fatal skill. But this was not enough. Firing at a mark is simple work. Firing at a man, especially one holding a pistol pointed at you, is altogether different. I had too often heard of crack shots missing their men, to rely confidently on my skill in the shooting-gallery. It was necessary that my eye and hand should be educated to familiarity with the real object. Part of the cause why duelists miss their man is from the trepidation of fear. I was without fear. At no moment in my life have I been afraid, and the chance of being shot by Korinsky I counted as nothing." The other cause is unfamiliarity with the mark. This I secured myself against by getting a lay figure of Korinsky's height, dressing it to resemble him, placing a pistol in its hand, and then practicing at this mark in the woods. After a short time I could send a bullet through the thorax without taking more than a hasty glance at the figure. Thus prepared, I started for Paris." but you will feel for me when you learn that my hungry heart was baffled of its vengeance, and baffled for ever. Agalma had been carried off by scarlet fever. Korinsky had left Paris, and I felt no strong promptings to follow him, and wreak on him a feudal vengeance. 
It was on her my wrath had been concentrated, and I gnashed my teeth at the thought that she had escaped me. My story is ended. The months of gloomy depression which succeeded, now that I was no longer sustained by the hope of vengeance, I need not speak of. My existence was desolate, and even now the desolation continues over the whole region of the emotions. I carry a dead heart within me. CHAPTER Eight: A SECOND VICTIM Burgonef's story has been narrated with some fullness, though in less detail than he told it, in order that the reader may understand its real bearings on my story. Without it, the motives which impelled the strange pertinacity of my pursuit would have been unintelligible. I have said that a very disagreeable impression remained on my mind respecting certain aspects of his character, and I felt somewhat ashamed of my imperfect sagacity in having up to this period been entirely blind to those aspects. The truth is, every human being is a mystery, and remains so to the last. We fancy we know a character. We form a distinct conception of it, for years that conception remains unmodified, and suddenly the strain of some emergency, of the incidental stimulus of new circumstances, reveals qualities not simply unexpected, but flatly contradictory of our previous conception. We judge of a man by the angle he subtends to our eye, only thus can we judge of him and this angle depends on the relation his qualities and circumstances bear to our interests and sympathies. Bourgonef had charmed me intellectually. Morally I had never come closer to him than in the sympathies of public questions and abstract theories. His story had disclosed hidden depths. My old suspicions reappeared, and a conversation we had two days afterwards helped to strengthen them. We had gone on a visit to Schwanthaler, the sculptor, at his tiny little castle of Schwaneck, a few miles from Munich. The artist was out for a walk, but we were invited to come in and await his return, which would be shortly, and meanwhile Bourgonef undertook to show me over the castle, interesting as a bit of modern Gothic, realizing on a diminutive scale a youthful dream of the sculptor's. When our survey was completed, and it did not take long, we sat at one of the windows and enjoyed a magnificent prospect. "'It is curious,' said Bourgonef, "'to be shut up here in this imitation of medieval masonry, where every detail speaks of the dead past, and to think of the events now going on in Paris which must find imitators all over Europe, and which open to the mind such vistas of the future.' What a grotesque anachronism is this Gothic castle, built in the same age as that which sees a reforming pope! Yes, but is not the reforming pope himself an anachronism? As a Catholic, here he smiled, intimating that his orthodoxy was not very stringent, I cannot admit that. As a Protestant, you must admit that if there must be a pope, he must in these days be a reformer, or give up his temporal power. Not that I look on Pio Nono as more than a precursor. He may break ground and point the way, but he is not the man to lead Europe out of its present slew of despond, and under the headship of the Church found a new and lasting republic. 
We want a Hildebrandt, one who will be to the nineteenth century as Gregory was to the eleventh. Do you believe in such a possibility? Do you think the Roman pontiff can ever again sway the destinies of Europe? I can hardly say I believe it, yet I see the possibility of such an opening, if the right man were to arise. But I fear he will not arise, or if he should, the conclave will stifle him. Yet there is but one alternative. Either Europe must once more join in a crusade with a pope at the head, or it must hoist the red flag. There is no other issue. Heaven preserve us from both, and I think we shall be preserved from the pope by the rottenness of the church, and from the drapeau rouge by the indignation and horror of all honest men. You see how the provisional government has resisted the insane attempt of the fanatics to make the red flag accepted as the national banner? Yes, and it is the one thing which dashes my pleasure in the new revolution. It is the one act of weakness which the government has exhibited, a concession which will be fatal, unless it be happily set aside by the energetic party of action. An act of weakness? Say rather an act of strength. A concession? Say rather the repudiation of anarchy, the assertion of law and justice. Not a bit. It was in concession to the fears of the timid and to the vanity of the French people. The tricolor is a French flag, not the banner of humanity. It is because the tricolor has been identified with the victories of France that it appeals to the vanity of the vainest of people. They forget that it is the flag of a revolution which failed, and of an empire which was one perpetual outrage to humanity, whereas the red is new. It is the symbol of an energetic, thorough-going creed. If it carries terror with it, so much the better. The tyrants and the timid should be made to tremble. I had no idea you were so bloodthirsty, said I, laughing at his vehemence. I am not bloodthirsty at all. I am only logical and consistent. There is a mass of sophistry current in the world which sickens me. People talk of Robespierre and Saint-Just, two of the most virtuous men that ever lived, and of Dominic and Torquemada, two of the most single-minded, as if they were cruel and bloodthirsty, whereas they were only convinced. Is it from love of paradox that you defend these tigers? Tigers, again! How those beasts are calumniated! He said this with a seriousness which was irresistibly comic. I shouted with laughter, but he continued gravely. You think I am joking? But let me ask you why you consider the tiger more bloodthirsty than yourself. He springs upon his food. You buy yours from the butcher. He cannot live without animal food. It is a primal necessity, and he obeys the ordained instinct. You can live on vegetables. Yet you slaughter beasts of the field and birds of the air, or buy them when slaughtered, and consider yourself a model of virtue. The tiger only kills his food or his enemies. You not only kill both, but you kill one animal to make gravy for another. The tiger is less bloodthirsty than the Christian. I don't know how much of that tirade is meant to be serious, but to waive the question of the tiger's morality, do you really, I will not say sympathize, but 
justify Robespierre, Dominic, Saint Just, and the rest of the fanatics who have waded to their ends through blood? He who wills the end wills the means. A devil's maxim, but a truth. What the foolish world shrinks at as bloodthirstiness and cruelty is very often mere force and constancy of intellect. It is not that fanatics thirst for blood. Far from it, but they thirst for the triumph of their cause. Whatever obstacle lies on their path must be removed. If a torrent of blood is the only thing that will sweep it away, the torrent must sweep. And sweep with it all the sentiments of pity, mercy, charity, love? No, these sentiments may give a sadness to the necessity. They make the deed a sacrifice. but they cannot prevent the soul from seeing the aim to which it tends. This is a detestable doctrine. It is the sophism which has destroyed families, devastated cities, and retarded the moral progress of the world more than anything else. No single act of injustice is ever done on this earth, but it tends to perpetuate the reign of iniquity. By the feelings it calls forth, it keeps up the native savagery of the heart. It breeds injustice, partly by hardening the minds of those who assent, and partly by exciting the passion of revenge in those who resist. You are wrong. The great drag chain on the car of progress is the faltering inconsistency of man. Weakness is more cruel than sternness. Sentiment is more destructive than logic. The arrival of Schwanthaler was timely, for my indignation was rising. The sculptor received us with great cordiality, and in the pleasure of the subsequent hour I got over to some extent the irritation Bourgonef's talk had excited. The next day I left Munich for the Tyrol. My parting with Bourgonef was many degrees less friendly than it would have been a week before. I had no wish to see him again. and therefore gave him no address or invitation in case he should come to England. As I rolled away in the Malpost, my busy thoughts reviewed all the details of our acquaintance, and the farther I was carried from his presence, the more obtrusive became the suspicions which connected him with the murder of Lieschen Lefeld. How, or upon what motive, was indeed an utter mystery. He had not mentioned the name of Lefeld. He had not mentioned having before been at Nuremberg. At Heidelberg the tragedy occurred. Or was Heidelberg only a mask? It occurred to me that he had first ascertained that I had never been at Heidelberg before he placed the scene of his story there. Thoughts such as these tormented me. Imagine then the horror with which I heard, soon after my arrival at Salzburg, that a murder had been committed at Grosshessler, one of the pretty environs of Munich much resorted to by holiday folk, corresponding in all essential features with the murder at Nuremberg. In both cases the victim was young and pretty. In both cases she was found quietly lying on the ground, stabbed to the heart, without any other traces of violence. In both cases she was a betrothed bride, and the motive of the unknown assassin a mystery. Such a correspondence in the essential features inevitably suggested an appalling mystery of unity in these crimes, 
either as the crimes of one man, committed under some impulse of motiveless malignity and thirst for innocent blood, or as the equally appalling effect of imitation acting contagiously upon a criminal imagination, of which contagion there have been, unfortunately, too many examples, horrible crimes prompting certain weak and feverish imaginations by the very horror they inspire, first to dwell on, and finally to realize their imitations. It was this latter hypothesis which found general acceptance. Indeed, it was the only one which rested upon any ground of experience. The disastrous influence of imitation, especially under the fascination of horror, was well known. The idea of any diabolical malice moving one man to pass from city to city, and there quietly single out his victims, both of them by the very hypothesis unrelated to him, both of them at the epoch of their lives when the bosom's lord sits lightly on its throne, when the peace of the heart is assured, and the future is radiantly beckoning to them, that any man should choose such victims for such crimes was too preposterous an idea long to be entertained. Unless the man were mad, the idea was inconceivable, and even a monomaniac must betray himself in such a course, because he would necessarily conceive himself to be accomplishing some supreme act of justice. It was thus I argued, and indeed I should have much preferred to believe that one maniac were involved, rather than the contagion of crime, since one maniac must inevitably be soon detected, whereas there were no assignable limits to the contagion of imitation." and this it was which so profoundly agitated German society. In every family in which there happened to be a bride, vague tremors could not be allayed, and the absolute powerlessness which resulted from the utter uncertainty as to the quarter in which this dreaded phantom might next appear, justified and intensified those tremors. Against such an apparition there was no conceivable safeguard, from a city stricken with the plague, from a district so stricken, flight is possible, and there are the resources of medical aid. But from a moral plague like this, what escape was possible? So passionate and profound came the terror, that I began to share the opinion which I heard expressed, regretting the widespread publicity of the modern press, since, with many undeniable benefits, it carried also the fatal curse of distributing through households and keeping constantly under the excitement of discussion images of crime and horror which would tend to perpetuate and extend the excesses of individual passion. The mere dwelling long on such a topic as this was fraught with evil. This and more I heard discussed as I hurried back to Munich. To Munich? Yes, thither I was posting with all speed. Not a shadow of doubt now remained in my mind. I knew the assassin, and was resolved to track and convict him. Do not suppose that this time I was led away by the vagrant activity of my constructive imagination. I had something like positive proof. No sooner had I learned that the murder had been committed at Grosshessler, then my thoughts at once carried me to a now memorable visit I had made there in company with Burgonef and two young Bavarians. 
At the hotel where we dined, we were waited on by the niece of the landlord, a girl of remarkable beauty who naturally excited the attention of four young men, and furnished them with a topic of conversation. One of the Bavarians had told us that she would one day be perhaps one of the wealthiest women in the country, for she was engaged to be married to a young farmer who had recently found himself, by a rapid succession of deaths, sole heir to a great brewer, whose wealth was known to be enormous. At this moment Sophie entered bringing wine, and I saw Bourgonef slowly turn his eyes upon her with a look which then was mysterious to me, but which now spoke too plainly its dreadful meaning. What is there in a look, you will say? Perhaps nothing, or it may be everything. To my unsuspecting, unenlightened perception, Bourgonef's gaze was simply the melancholy and half-curious gaze which such a man might be supposed to cast upon a young woman who had been made the topic of an interesting discourse. But to my mind, enlightened as to his character, and instructed as to his peculiar feelings arising from his own story, the gaze was charged with horror. It marked a victim. The whole succession of events rose before me in vivid distinctness, the separate details of suspicion gathered into unity. Great as was Bourgonef's command over his features, he could not conceal uneasiness as well as surprise at my appearance at the table d'hôte in Munich. I shook hands with him, putting on as friendly a mask as I could, and replied to his question about my sudden return by attributing it to unexpected intelligence received at Salzburg. "'Nothing serious, I hope.' "'Well, I'm afraid it will prove very serious,' I said. "'But we shall see. Meanwhile my visit to the Tyrol must be given up or postponed.' "'Do you remain here, then?' I don't know what my movements will be. Thus I had prepared him for any reserve or strangeness in my manner, and I had concealed from him the course of my movements, for at whatever cost I was resolved to follow him and bring him to justice. But how? Evidence I had none that could satisfy any one else, however convincing it might be to my own mind. Nor did there seem any evidence forthcoming from Grosshesleur. Sophie's body had been found in the afternoon, lying as if asleep in one of the by-paths of the wood. No marks of a struggle, no traces of the murderer. Her affianced lover, who was at Augsburg, on hearing of her fate, hurried to Grosshesleur, but could throw no light on the murder, could give no hint as to a possible motive for the deed. But this entire absence of evidence, or even ground of suspicion, only made my case the stronger." It was the motiveless malignity of the deed which fastened it on Bourgonef, or rather it was the absence of any known motive elsewhere which assured me that I had detected the motive in him. Should I communicate my conviction to the police? It was possible that I might impress them with at least sufficient suspicion to warrant his examination, and in that case the truth might be elicited for among the many barbarities and iniquities of the criminal procedure in the continental states which often press heavily on the innocent, there is this compensating advantage, that the pressure on the guilty is tenfold heavier. 
if the innocent are often unjustly punished, imprisoned and maltreated before their innocence can be established, the guilty seldom escape. In England we give the criminal not only every chance of escape, but many advantages. The love of fair play is carried to excess. It seems at times if the whole arrangements of our procedure were established with a view to giving a criminal not only the benefit of every doubt, but of every loophole through which he can slip. Instead of this, the continental procedure goes on the principle of closing up every loophole, and of inventing endless traps into which the accused may fall. We warn the accused not to say anything that may be prejudicial to him. They entangle him in contradictions and confessions which disclose his guilt. Knowing this, I thought it very likely that, however artful Bourgonef might be, a severe examination might extort from him sufficient confirmation of my suspicion to warrant further procedure. But knowing also that this resort was open to me when all others had failed, I resolved to wait and watch. CHAPTER Nine, FINALE Two days passed, and nothing occurred. My watching seemed hopeless, and I resolved to try the effect of a disguised interrogatory. It might help to confirm my already settled conviction, if it did not elicit any new evidence. Seated in Bourgonef's room in the old place, each with a cigar, and chatting as of old on public affairs, I gradually approached the subject of the recent murder. "'Is it not strange,' I said, "'that both these crimes should have happened "'while we were casually staying in both places?' "'Perhaps we are the criminals,' he replied, laughing. "'I shivered slightly at this audacity. "'He laughed as he spoke, "'but there was a hard, metallic, "'and almost defiant tone in his voice "'which exasperated me. "'Perhaps we are,' I answered quietly. "'He looked full at me, but I was prepared,' and my face told nothing. I added, as in explanation, "'The crime being apparently contagious, we may have brought the infection from Nuremberg.' "'Do you believe in that hypothesis of imitation?' "'I don't know what to believe. Do you believe in there being only one murderer? It seems such a preposterous idea. We must suppose him at any rate to be a maniac.' "'Not necessarily.' Indeed, there seems to have been too much artful contrivance in both affairs, not only in the selection of the victims, but in the execution of the schemes. Cunning as maniacs often are, they are still maniacs and betray themselves. If not a maniac, I said, hoping to pique him, he must be a man of stupendous and pitiable vanity, perhaps one of your constant-minded friends, whom you refuse to call bloodthirsty." constant-minded, perhaps, but why pitiably vain? Why? Because only a diseased atrocity of imagination, stimulating a nature essentially base and weak in its desire to make itself conspicuous, would or could suggest such things. The silly youth who fired the Ephesian dome, the vain idiot who set fire to Yorkminster, the miserable Frenchmen who have committed murder and suicide with a view of making their exit striking from a world in which their appearance had been contemptible, would all sink into insignificance beside the towering infamy of baseness which, 
for the mere love of producing an effect on the minds of men, and thus drawing their attention upon him, would otherwise would never have marked him at all, would scheme and execute crimes so horrible and inexcusable. In common charity to human nature, let us suppose the wretch is mad, because otherwise his miserable vanity would be too loathsome. I spoke with warmth and bitterness, which increased as I perceived him wincing under the degradation of my contempt. "'If his motive were vanity,' he said, "'no doubt it would be horrible. But may not it have been revenge?' "'Revenge!' I exclaimed. "'What, on innocent women?' "'You assume their innocence.' "'Good God! Do you know anything to the contrary?' "'Not I, but—' As we are conjecturing, I may as well conjecture it to have been the desire to produce a startling effect. How do you justify your conjecture? Simply enough. We have to suppose a motive. Let us say it was revenge, and see whether that will furnish a clue. But it can't. The two victims were wholly unconnected with each other by any intermediate acquaintances. Consequently, there can have been no common wrong— or common enmity in existence to furnish food for vengeance. That may be so. It may also be that the avenger made them vicarious victims. How so? It is human nature. Did you ever observe a thwarted child striking in its anger the unoffending nurse, destroying its toys to discharge its wrath? Did you ever see a schoolboy, unable to wreak his anger on the bigger boy who has just struck him, turn against the nearest smaller boy and beat him? Did you ever know a schoolmaster, angered by one of the boy's parents, vent his pent-up spleen upon the unoffending class? Did you ever see a subaltern punished because an officer had been reprimanded? These are familiar examples of vicarious vengeance. When the soul is stung to fury— it must solace itself by the discharge of that fury. It must relieve its pain by the sight of pain in others. We are so constituted. We need sympathy above all things. In joy we cannot bear to see others in distress. In distress we see the joy of others with dismal envy which sharpens our pain. That is human nature. And, I exclaimed, carried away by my indignation, you suppose that the sight of these two happy girls, beaming with the quiet joy of brides, was torture to some miserable wretch who had lost his bride. I had gone too far. His eyes looked into mine. I read in his that he divined the whole drift of my suspicion, the illusion made to himself. There often passes into a look more than words can venture to express. In that look, he read that he was discovered, and I read that he had recognized it. With perfect calmness, but with a metallic ring in his voice, which was like the clash of swords, he said, I did not say that I supposed this, but, as we were on the wide field of conjecture, utterly without evidence one way or the other, having no clue either to the man or his motives, I drew from the general principles of human nature a conclusion which was just as plausible, or absurd, if you like, as the conclusion that the motive must have been vanity. As you say, we are utterly without evidence, and conjecture drifts aimlessly from one thing to another. After all, the most plausible explanation is that of a contagion of imitation. 
I said this in order to cover my previous imprudence. He was not deceived, though for a few moments I fancied he was, but replied, "'I am not persuaded of that either. The whole thing is a mystery, and I shall stay here some time in the hope of seeing it cleared up. Meanwhile, for a subject of conjecture, let me show you something on which your ingenuity may profitably be employed.' He rose and passed into his bedroom. I heard him unlocking and rummaging the drawers, and was silently reproaching myself for my want of caution in having spoken as I had done, though it was now beyond all doubt that he was the murderer, and that his motive had been rightly guessed, but with this self-reproach there was mingled a self-gratulation at the way I had got out of the difficulty, as I fancied. He returned, and as he sat down I noticed that the lower part of his surtout was open. He always wore a long-frogged and braided coat reaching to the knees, as I know now for the purpose of concealing the arm which hung, as he said, withered at his side. The two last fastenings were now undone. He held in his hand a tiny chain made of very delicate wire. This he gave me, saying, "'Now what would you conjecture that to be?' Had it come into my hands without any remark, I should have said it was simply a very exquisite bit of ironwork, but your question points to something more out of the way. "'It is ironwork,' he said. Could I be deceived? A third fastening of his surtout was undone. I had seen but two a moment ago. "'And what am I to conjecture?' I asked. "'Where that iron came from? It was not from a mine.' I looked at it again, and examined it attentively. On raising my eyes in inquiry, fortunately with an expression of surprise, since what met my eyes would have startled a cooler man, I saw the fourth fastening undone. "'You look surprised,' he continued, "'and will be more surprised when I tell you that the iron in your hands once floated in the circulation of a man. It is made from human blood.' "'Human blood!' I murmured. He went on expounding the physiological wonders of the blood, how it carried, dissolved in its currents, a proportion of iron and earths, how this iron was extracted by chemists and exhibited as a curiosity, and how this chain had been manufactured from such extracts. I heard every word, but my thoughts were hurrying to and fro in the agitation of a supreme moment." that there was a dagger underneath that coat, that in a few moments it would flash forth, that a death-struggle was at hand, I knew well. My safety depended on presence of mind, that incalculable rapidity with which, in critical moments, the mind surveys all the openings and resources of an emergency, had assured me that there was no weapon within reach, that before I could give an alarm the tiger would be at my throat, and that my only chance was to keep my eyes fixed upon him, ready to spring on him the moment the next fastening was undone, and before he could use his arm. At last the idea occurred to me that as, with a wild beast, safety lies in attacking him just before he attacks you, so with this beast my best chance was audacity. Looking steadily into his face, I said slowly, and you would like to have such a chain made from my blood. I rose as I spoke. He remained sitting, but was evidently taken aback. What do you mean? he said. 
"'I mean,' said I sternly, "'that your coat is unfastened, "'and that if another fastening is loosened in my presence "'I fell you to the earth.' "'You're a fool!' he exclaimed. "'I moved towards the door, "'keeping my eye fixed upon him "'as he sat pale and glaring at me. "'You are a fool,' I said, "'and worse if you stir.' "'At this moment,' I know not by what sense, as if I had eyes at the back of my head, I was aware of someone moving behind me, yet I dared not look aside. Suddenly two mighty folds of darkness seemed to envelop me like arms. A powerful scent ascended my nostrils. There was a ringing in my ears, a beating at my heart. Darkness came on, deeper and deeper, like huge waves. I seemed growing to gigantic stature. The waves rolled on faster and faster. The ringing became a roaring. The beating became a throbbing. Lights flashed across the darkness. Forms moved before me. On came the waves hurrying like a tide, and I sank deeper and deeper into this mighty sea of darkness. Then all was silent. Consciousness was still. How long I remained unconscious I cannot tell, but it must have been some considerable time. When consciousness once more began to dawn within me, I found myself lying on a bed surrounded by a group of eager, watching faces, and became aware of a confused murmur of whispering going on around me. Er lebt, he lives, were the words which greeted my opening eyes, words which I recognized as coming from my landlord. I had had a very narrow escape. Another moment, and I should not have lived to tell the tale. The dagger that had already immolated two of Burgonef's objects of vengeance would have been in my breast. As it was, at the very moment when the terrible Ivan had thrown his arms around me and was stifling me with chloroform, one of the servants of the hotel, alarmed or attracted by curiosity at the sound of high words within the room, had ventured to open the door to see what was going on. The alarm had been given, and Bourgonef had been arrested and handed over to the police. Ivan, however, had disappeared, nor were the police ever able to find him. This mattered comparatively little. Ivan, without his master, was no more redoubtable than any other noxious animal. As an accomplice, as an instrument to execute the will of a man like Bourgonef, he was a danger to society. The directing intelligence withdrawn, he sank to the level of the brute. I was not uneasy, therefore, at his having escaped. Sufficient for me that the real criminal, the mind that had conceived and directed those fearful murders, was at last in the hands of justice. I felt that my task had been fully accomplished when Bourgonef's head fell on the scaffold. End of Bourgonef.